Hello, and welcome once again to Watershed Writers, the radio documentary series and podcast that features writers creating literature in the Grand River region in southwestern Ontario. We record on the traditional territories of the neutral Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples, and we are dedicated to bringing you stories about writers from diverse backgrounds. On this program, we read books written by local writers, and we talk about all kinds of subjects. Our slogan is... Listen local, think global. This is our season three, and I am your host, Tannis McDonald. Francis Riley steers the ship as the show's producer, and John Roscoe is our technical director and promotion specialist. We are very happily partnered with the wonderful folks at Midtown Radio in Kitchener-Waterloo. And you can also catch past episodes, including all of seasons one and two, on the Watershed Writers account on SoundCloud or on Midtown Radio's account on Spotify. Our guest for this episode is novelist Kimia Esla, author of The Daughter Who Walked Away and her latest novel, Sister Seen, Sister Heard. I first heard Kimia on author podcasts from the region, the excellent The Feminist Shift, and as soon as I heard her thoughtful conversation about writing, about families, gender-based violence, the need to talk more about diversity in literature, and the need for change, I knew that I wanted to bring her on Watershed Writers. Many thanks to our colleagues over at The Feminist Shift for their good work, and to Kimia's publishers at Roseway Publishing for sending me a copy of her latest book. As in-person events began to open up in fall 2022, I had a chance to meet Kimia at the Bestival Reads event in Waterloo. Her first novel, The Daughter Who Walked Away, came out in 2019, and it was included in Ms. Magazine's Reads for the Rest of Us that year. Carla Strand of Ms. describes it as a powerful debut that follows three generations of Iranian women determined to break the cycles of trauma and live healthy and loving lives. The novel was also long listed for the very best books of 2019 on the Miramichi Reader. Kimia Esla describes herself as a third-wave feminist and a queer writer. She was born in Shiraz, Iran, and lived with her parents and siblings in New Delhi in India before immigrating to Canada and settling in Toronto. She now lives in the Grand River region and she is an instructional designer in addition to being a writer. Welcome to Watershed Writers, Kimia Esla. Hello, thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to talk to you about this book. Uh, congratulations on Sister Seen, Sister Heard. It's been a really pleasant experience. The second book has been like very uh, nurturing. So yeah, thank you. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. I know that Publishing a book in 2022 has been kind of an experience. Things were opening up, but of course, even that was you know highly negotiated. So uh, I'm glad to hear that you've been having a, a good experience with it. I want to start by asking you about your genesis as a novelist. How did you find yourself at a place in your life where you know you were like, okay, now I'm going to write a novel and I'm going to write a second novel, and perhaps you're working on a third right now. And I ask because. 
I teach emerging writers, and I, I know that all kinds of people can write a short story, but getting to that book length isn't something that happens in a day or two days or a hundred days or even a hundred sort of steps or things to do. So I'm always trying to demystify that for our uh, listeners who are writers and just for people who are, are interested in the, in the art in general. Can you talk about how you found yourself there, how you got yourself there? Certainly. First off, I want to give a shout out to anyone who writes short stories because it can take a very long time for a short story to become worthy. The constraint of having fewer words, it's difficult. It's easier, actually, I find, to write a novel because it's like having a very long-winded speech. <laughs> you know, I don't have to be as succinct and get to it as quickly. But for myself and my experience as a writer, I want to say that I think that we are all storytellers and that it starts in childhood that we learn to tell stories to ourselves about how the world works and that understanding, even if the story requires a considerable amount of suspension of disbelief, that we need these stories in order for us to really understand and be able to move forward in our actions. These stories don't need to be structured or formalized into novels. And really most of them, of these stories that we tell ourselves, we never speak out loud. And that can be great because keeping a story inside can be really powerful. It's like a private explanation, right? And and to have a story within us that doesn't require any outside critique or any close examination of our belief system, that's a powerful thing. But I need to write these stories aloud because I need to understand that what I'm telling myself is legitimate. I need to understand that it's a shared experience. And so how did I come to writing novels? I came to them because I had these stories in my mind that I was telling myself, explaining how I came to be in the world. Different people that I knew, how they came to the place that they are in life. And I needed to see if the story could hold water. Could I write it and explain it according to what I thought? And does it still make sense even with a critical gaze on it? And it's a quite cathartic way of being able to have other people in the world read my version of events, not real events, but just the stories, and to be able to have other people say, yes, that makes sense. I've experienced that. I know what that's about. I mean, I've certainly had many people in my life who have doubted my version of events, my stories. And to put it in a book and stick it out there in the world and have other people say that they can see how that could happen, that this is viable, this is a, a realistic uh, portrayal of how things could go. It just gives me a little more security in the sense of this is my story that I'm telling you. And it is possible. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, it, it does. It does. Because I think taking all those steps, becoming a novelist needs a kind of fire in the belly, right? You need to have a real drive to, and not to do it for an esoteric uh, reason, but to do it because of something within you that you, that you really need or, or want to have done. So that makes total sense to me. Are novels like, like Peanuts, once you write one, you really want to write another? <laughs> I think they might be almost like uh, taking political office, 
Once you take one term, you really want to come back for the next. And if they're willing to give you a higher position, you know, you want to you want to try for it. Certainly the same way that we give positive encouragement to uh, any youth when they try something and we tell them, well, that's great. Now let's try one more. You know, it's that same kind of feeling of having being praised or being acknowledged by having people invest time, energy, money into me is a reminder that I have something that people want to hear. I want to put it on paper. So let's do it. Okay. If I have all of the willpower and the energy that I need, or just a little bit and somebody else can boost me up, then definitely they are like peanuts or the Lay's chips. <laughs> Once you have one, <laughs> I, I eat the whole bag, obviously. <laughs> Right. And also, once you identify what is possible in terms of what can be said, it's like, oh, wait, I, if that's so, then I have more to say. Right? I've got another book in me and another. So I read, I think you were uh, writing a, were you writing a blog or a substack? Anyway, it doesn't matter. You've described yourself in that piece of online writing as, and I'm going to quote from you, a publicist's worst nightmare, a cynic with a filter that pass a soup can. <laughs> Which I had to laugh when I read it. Good for you. <laughs> That's what I like to hear, right? You go on to talk about the fact that one of the reasons you're the publicist's worst nightmare is that you don't like the question, how will this book impact the world? And I have to say that I really want to invite you to be your most cynical as you want to be <laughs> uh, as we talk. And just to declare that I don't love that, you know, how the, the book will impact the world question myself uh, as an interviewer or a writer. Uh, so I'm not going to ask it here, although I am going to talk about how the books impacted me and perhaps, you know, invite you to, uh, to talk about, yeah, how writing the book impacted you. Because I do think the books do things. Right. But I also know <laughs> I also know the reading has been described as staring at a dead tree and hallucinating, <laughs> which is something I read this week, and I think is uh, is an interesting take. So I take sort of that the publicist question about impact the world with with a grain of salt. It's a lot to ask of a single book, you know, uh, an impact on the world. Uh, yeah, as a cynic, what do you uh, what do you have to say about marketing and, and publishing and these kinds of unanswerable questions about books. You know, I think about every time that there is a movement, whether it's civil rights movement of the United States with like the Million Man March or other movements where we're making it known that it's something is not okay, you know, time's up, right? It's not a person. It's as many people as you can possibly gather together. And then that group still has to bear the brunt of all of the backlash that comes from mainstream media. So to imagine that any one author, any one book, any one movie or piece of art or any one speech is going to make an impact on the world. I don't even know why we bother to have that conversation because we're not children and we're not creating fairy tales about the world for ourselves. If we know the truth, it's that change comes over time, change comes as a result of generations of people trying, and not one person. So what is the impact of this book? The impact of this book is that I get to make appearances, and then I get to tear down the establishment that set up those appearances, really. 
I went to an event recently and it was so obvious that I was a token member of a dozen people who were writers. I think two of us were people of color and none of the writers who were who would have identified as white ever touched the issue of race in their readings. There was a complete lack of acknowledgement that they had a race. So when I came up to the podium <laughs> to do my reading, it didn't come out the way it would have had the room been diverse, multicultural, people of all walks of life who write and like to read. What it came out as was me just letting the entire audience know that I am brown, that I am different, and I only see me, and that if you want to support diversity, you have to do it at every possible opportunity. One is not enough. So one book is not going to make a change. It's just over time, making sure that I'm not just feeding myself, that I'm holding space open for every person who didn't get to be on that stage. And a show of solidarity, I raise my fist and I say, hey, now that you gave me the mic, just to let you know, there aren't enough of us. I'm not going to read from my book. There aren't enough of us. <laughs> like, I'm not going to make you feel good for inviting me because there aren't enough of us here. And you didn't read. Oh, I like to think I didn't read. I read. They were, <laughs> they were paying me. I read a short little snippet of something and I'm, I'm just as soft bellied as everybody else. You know, I, I can cave to pressure and I wanted to make the statements that I made. And I let them know that I'm also a writer and I also have content, but I am distinct from my content. Yeah, it's just a very interesting experience. Every single time I'm asked to represent a swath of people, so many groups, I'm asked to represent them. And I want people to know that that's not possible. We would never ask a white person to do that. Why are you asking me? Excellent point. Do you think this has been a kind of uh, way that the cynic in you have, has been fed by encountering such uh, such events and, and such pressures to represent on uh, like on a wide scale when you're one person? Actually, have it easier with not that I would want this on anybody, but any kind of hate mail that I've received and results as a feedback from my writing, like people just reaching out. If it's misogynistic or if it's racist or if it's queerphobic, whatever it is, when it's extreme like that, or even when it's like subtle but still extreme, I can take that a little bit more easily than I can the left-leaning liberal tokenism. I find that very difficult. I can't go through a meeting without constantly bringing out the race card and like mentioning, hey, okay, we're not talking about race here. Maybe we should be. And it's the harder of the two. When I feel extremism come up, I understand it. I can talk to it in a way that I can't talk to a left-leaning, liberal-minded person who doesn't realize they're racist. It's insidious, right? Uh, yeah, and it's like the patriarchy. It's very hard for people you were embedded in the patriarchy to to recognize that they are right, and it takes like extreme action or 
you know, a, a kind of um, moment that is very hard to make happen for them, right? And that they, they're going to recognize it or not. And all we can do is keep offering book by book, sentence by sentence, event by event, etc. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about the book and and to think about this book as a, a kind of certainly a, a personal action, but also a political action. And speaking of feminism, for me, something I really enjoyed and I love to see in this book was the, the relationship between the two sisters, Farah and Farzana, and uh, the fact that they have such contrasting personalities, yet the care that they take of each other was really moving. For all the relationships in the book, I was just really moved by how you wrote personalities and the dynamics between those personalities. Something that I wanted to ask you about was because the two young women are, are contrasted within the family and it's become such a dynamic among the family that the young women do it themselves. They compare themselves to their, their uh, sister. I wanted to know how early in the book did that contrast appear to you? Did it alter the structure of the book when you were writing? Like how important was it that you had these two young women who cared for each other despite or because of the fact that they were very different? So when we write books, we write characters. They're not people. We try very hard to get as close to people as we can. But the truth is that if we try to write a full person, it becomes a grocery list and then it's not as easy for the reader to connect with them because in a, in a way we want to leave holes so that the reader fills in those holes in the character and then hooks into that character based on their own feel for that person. So I did want to make empty spaces for people to be able to just connect with these two women on their own terms. But as characters, I also wanted to show how women, especially young women, do their best to make it in the world. But the tools that they use are dependent on their personalities. So I think about like a young woman who has, you know, long hair covering most of her face. That might be a way of like shielding herself now, whether that long hair comes straightened and very, very polished looking, or it's just a big frizz and it's just right in front of her face, that, that can be up to her. And so I wanted to show that these two young women have their own distinct personalities. They're both ambitious in that they share that trait with their parents. But the distinction between them is really about their difference in personality. Whereas one sister doesn't like waves, doesn't like conflict, doesn't want there to be a big blowout. The older sister who's more polished, so she gets along in the world by doing things in a way that is much more appealing and appeasing to the eye. So she does things in the background. She tends to hide a lot of herself and compartmentalize her life to avoid there being conflict. And the younger sister being a little bit more, I'm losing my expressions here, but, you know, just throwing it up to the wind or whatever it is that we say, like, she doesn't, she doesn't care so much what people think. She wants an identity that is strong and is firm. And so 
she dresses and she speaks and she just carries herself in a way that is full of attitude and dying for some sort of confrontation. So definitely there is contrast between the two characters. If I could, I would have wrote a third sister. You know, it would have just complicated matters a bit, but I, I, I could write a third sister even. And that would be a different way of showing another woman who is moving through the world in a way that works for her. So that's where contrast came from. That's great. Oh, I love this idea of the third sister. And of course, I, I want you to write a, a novel with, with uh, <laughs> the third sister. <laughs> yeah, who's perfectly good and nothing bad happens and she likes everything. And... <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe we'll jump to it. Another question I have, you know, we had uh, E.K. Johnson, the novelist on, on the show, and she's known as Kate Johnson. And uh, I'm going to repeat something that, that, that Kate said. She's written a book, uh, her book, Exit Pursued by a Bear, has uh, an assault in it. And the rest of the book untangles the uh, aftermath of the assault and the young woman's healing and her, her and her confidence. So Kate works in realist fiction, like that book, as well as in fantasy. She writes for the Star Wars series, etc. So she told us in her interview that after writing a book where a girl becomes a god about space travel and tales of dragon slayers, the most fantasy-based thing she's written was her novel in which a young woman was assaulted and everyone believes her. And she was wry about this. She said, yeah, that was the moment that where that was real fantasy because everyone believed her. So I guess that's what I wanted to ask you about. The world outside the novel and, of course, the world that the family builds within it because there is an assault in, in this novel and family does believe the young woman and that becomes very important for what the novel does like in, in terms of how i read it becomes very important belief and the young woman's confidence becomes important for how the novel moves forward can i ask you to, to comment on that i love what kate said about the experience of that being the most uh, unrealistic the most magical part of it is that people believe so this is interesting I wrote a book about sexual violence and predatory behavior, and it came out as a book about a family and about an immigrant family. You see, it is that difficult to read a book by a woman of color, an author of color who writes about sexual assault, set it in a family of four, and still have it be about the sexual assault. It's still not about the sexual assault. And, and I think in every single situation that I've been asked about the book, it has been from the stance of the immigrant experience, right? So we just go back to the immigrant experience. So there's something about, there's something that happens in the process of writing a book, promoting, publicizing a book, and then the zeitgeist and what they do with that bit of information, right? So if this book was written with different characters who were not brown, who were possibly white, would it be about the family? Or would it be about the sexual violence? Would it be about the predatory behavior? I kind of have to roll with it as a writer because I cannot choose what people read into it. I would wish that the interpretation would be a little bit more varied 
Some people pick it up as an immigrant experience. Some people see it as a story of violence against women and how difficult it is to put that into a context that doesn't put the woman as um, a triggering effect, like, like she caused it. But I'm going to have to get you to get me that question again. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. It was a long question. Yeah, I was just interested in that idea of the fact that Kate said this was the most unbelievable part that people believed her, right? This was the, mm -hmm. you're right, you, you called it like a magical or fantasy kind of, uh, of thing that uh, the assault happens. And apart from the police, who kind of raise, raise one eyebrow and wonder what a one young woman was doing walking on campus alone and i thought uh, <laughs> hello that's every day that's <laughs> every day i you know and and women really are a allowed to walk alone and be definitely allowed to walk alone on a on a university campus that is supposed to be safe for them and catering mm -hmm. to their futures but everyone else, everyone else in uh, in the young woman's life steps up. She's got this um, great friend who witnesses the assault or the beginning of the assault from, uh, you know, maybe, you know, 500 meters away and just drops everything and runs towards the danger, right? Which I have to say, when, when she did it, I, I gasped, right? Because I just thought, oh, one, that's an incredible act of friendship. Two, that's very dangerous for her also, and she has just sort of forgotten about the, the danger to her in her devotion to her friend. And I was just, I was blown away by her courage and by the fact that she's so devoted to the, to the other young woman in friendship. And I just, um, it was a huge moment for me. I just thought, wow, wow, right? And I felt like I hadn't really seen that in fiction Anyway, I've, I'm changing uh, my, my I, question and just yacking on no, because no, no, I love I, this moment. Okay, so I said in a an interview that I had with the Feminist Shift podcast, that was a great podcast also, that I accidentally stumbled on saying this and, and now I'm, I just believe it now because now I realize it. I, I wrote a fairy tale, right? I wrote the perfect way to deal with it's you know how I learned to love the bomb right it's like how I how I learned to teach others the way I would want to be treated should something like this happen because it's one in four I think now it's one in three right it's it's happening all the time and are we talking about it sometimes and if we are talking about it and we don't know how to help I wanted to show how, and I wanted people to be able to see that there is, there's no value in that adage that, you know, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. It's, life is not like that. It just, it makes you weaker unless you have support in order to just regain yourself enough for the next time something happens, because that's life. That's the rest of your life as things will happen. I wanted to have almost like an instructional manual that was very compassionate, especially toward the patriarchs who think that they have to solve everything, right? And to be able to have them understand that here's one man and here's how he did it. You don't have to do it like that, but it could be this easy where you just listen and you believe and you ask how to help and you fail and it's okay and you don't take it to heart and you move forward with the victim in order to support them. So 
in a way, I guess I did write something that was magical because I didn't have that experience. I don't really know any woman who's this close to me having survived an experience like that and then gone through it as smoothly. It is a bit of a fairy tale, but I'm hoping it's instructional. Yeah, I, I like that. I think that's I think that's interesting, and I think it yeah, and I think it does really align with uh, with some of uh, Kate's comments. I really like that Farah doesn't fundamentally change, right? That it happens, and uh, and her family and friends support her, and she continues on. She doesn't change the way she dresses. She doesn't change uh, her rebellious nature. She continues to push back against uh, her father when when he is uh, too controlling. And I thought. I love it. <laughs> I love it. You know, we don't see a kind of a moment where she, I mean, she has her, she has her recovery period, but it doesn't fundamentally change how she operates in the world, which I, which I really liked. And, uh, and how important was that for you to keep that, uh, that part of her rebellious spirit alive? Coming up on Watershed Riders, we'll have interviews with Benjamin Lefevre about his new YA novel about music, romance, and a coming of age in the key of Dale. And Laurie D. Graham returns with her terrific book, Fast Commute, a long look at landscape, walking, and what we discard, written while she was living in the region. And news here about a free resource for readers. There are 40 years of Canadian writing now available digitally for the first time. You can get access to the New Quarterly's growing back catalogue from all your devices, free of charge. Just visit tng.ca for featured reads and online exclusives. The New Quarterly has been the region's stalwart literary magazine, publishing new and established writers for decades and sponsoring the Wild Riders Festival every fall since 2014. That's tnq.ca for the best of poetry, fiction, nonfiction, and podcasts. And now, back to Kimia Esla. Can I tell you a story? Yeah. Okay, so it's not a very exciting story. I don't have exciting stories. I'm not that person. But I have mundane stories that I really like. And uh, this story is about when I was a youth. So uh, when uh, I grew up in the 90s, and so that meant a lot of just heavy baggy clothes and well actually it meant for me a lot of heavy baggy clothes and you know shaved hair here and there and all the piercings and all that and um i certainly didn't fit the feminine archetype but i would regularly hear especially from family members who were very concerned about where i was going in life that if you want to make your way in the world uh, you have to be much more appealing and much more appeasing to the eye. It put a lot of doubt in my head, a lot of doubt about who I am, what's okay. And it didn't change how I presented myself. I was still loud. I was still brash. And I... I, I didn't feel like myself when I wore the other clothes. I wanted my clothes. And so I continued through my 20s and through my 30s, and I was still having success. 
and I was still moving up in the world and I was still making good friends and finding good jobs and establishing really meaningful sense of community. And I think it wasn't until my 40s that I it occurred to me that, oh, I think they were wrong. <laughs> I, don't think, <laughs> I don't think I need to dress like that. And which is interesting because now I love to dress like that, but I don't need to. I proved that I don't need to change. And no matter what anyone says, that's a fear that they have. But I might be just willing to give up on the benefits of this other caricature they want me to play. And so when you asked me about Farah not changing at all, certainly she did change a bit because who can go through trauma without change? But at the same time, I wanted to show the world that the things that are going wrong, the ways that we judge, especially youth, 20-somethings, teenagers, it's based on our own prejudice. When I see someone who is young and queer and out, like visibly out, I get scared for them. I get scared for them the way I was scared when I was 16 and 17. And I knew that if I did something that outed me, it could lead to physical violence. And so I'm scared for them and I don't want them to get hurt. But at the same time, now at least I'm aware enough to know to keep my mouth shut and not to tell them to change, right? So the idea is we make other people change. So for Farah, she didn't change her clothes. She didn't change her attitude. She still wanted her independence. And I needed her to have that and have everybody else around her start to make the change to understand, oh, so this is what patriarchy is. This is what it means when there's violence against women and we don't recognize it. And this is how we support someone without asking them to change. Yeah. Oh, I like that. I like that answer a lot. And I, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying um, because I, I often see it in, in young students that I teach, you know, who are, yeah, in their 20s. And I love the fact that they, you know, get to shave their head and do, do the things that Eh, sometimes I did, but not consistently, right? Um, and you're right. And sometimes I, I worry for them standing at the bus stop or anything, right? But but they have made that choice, and they are bold, and they are brave in a way that uh, you know many of us were were not when we were young. And I just I have to hand it to them. It's a courageous way to move through the world, right? Yes. And you're right. And the impulse to protect them is huge, huge. And I'm always trying to judge what I can do with the privilege that I have to protect them and what would be too much and smothering and uh, mm -hmm. out of line because I'm not their parent, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Anyway, so but yeah, let's so let's talk about masculinity in this book because I, I think you got, you got some things absolutely right on. The guy with the predatory behavior and speaking of being young, I super remember guys like that at parties that I would go to. Because mm -hmm. when you're young, someone says, yeah, my, my friend of a friend or my neighbor is having a party, let's go. And you just do because you think you can hang out with your friend and maybe you'll meet other people, right? Uh, but yeah, the like sort of the creepy older guy who is much older than everyone else at the party and 
so he just kind of made my skin crawl in memory of exactly those kinds of guys, right? Who, yeah, had all kinds of gross predatory behavior. So I, I, I wanted to congratulate you for uh, summoning up that <laughs> that grossness. I don't even like reading those sections. I didn't. Uh, yeah, it was it was not a uh, pleasant to write the sections. I wanted to portray uh, the thinking of someone close enough to uh, with some of the markers that a man would recognize in his own head as like, oh, that's a logic that I follow. That's a weird, that's weird that I share that in common with this person. And same with the father and the the father's work friend, to be able to have them be as human as possible so that a man reading the book could see himself in those positions. Because I think that's the interesting, the one of the myths, right, that we deal with with uh, sexual violence and violence against women is that it's the stranger, it's uh, it's someone you don't know, someone who doesn't care about you, and to know that with a concept like patriarchy, someone who loves you can hurt you, a man who thinks that they're just living in the world and taking and doing the things that they want, to be able to show that hey, that's a state of mind. And that can take you to very bad places. And if you don't know that that's your state of mind, and that's how you imagine that you can't see a woman as a person, you see her as a thing, that you too could be susceptible to treating a woman like a thing. Yeah, and I was very interested in your portrayal of Mustafa, the father, because throughout the book, he makes these kinds of realizations that he goes, oh, well, I'm not that guy. And I'm not that guy. But it takes him a long time to figure out who he is, or to examine who he is. Because he is very much uh, following through on, there are worse fathers in the world than me. And that's accurate. <laughs> right? There, there are. Yeah, there are. <laughs> but uh, it very soon it becomes, well, it's not enough to just not be the worst. You have to think about how to be better, mm-hmm. right? And I and I loved um, I loved the conversation that he has with his work friends that takes him another step further. And then of course the conversation that he that he has with his daughters and, and, and his wife that takes him a, another step further where he loses, in some ways he loses his, uh, what he thinks of as control over the family, but he gains something else. He gains empathy, he gains understanding, right? And again, so do you think that's part of the, uh, the the fairy tale aspect that you wanted to show what what it could be like, or an ultimate what it could be like? That's a good question too, Tannis. Stop it with the good questions. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, okay, so I've met many fathers, especially since having it my own child. Now I've met many young fathers. So. Uh, guys in their 30s and 40s and it's a very interesting conundrum it's it's a terrible paradigm to live in for them that they are they expect themselves to be everything and it's not okay for them to ask for help and they struggle at every age whether it's with their children or their grandchildren whether it's with their partners or their siblings as they grow older We've told them for so long that they have to be providers, protectors. For so long, mainstream has continued to tell them that they can't believe it when their loved ones 
say something different when their loved ones literally to their faces will say, I don't need you to protect me. I just want you to be here. And it's so hard for them to know what that means because if they're not doing something, then who are they? And so with Mustafa, he's not so much a fairy tale, but he's definitely a compilation of various fathers that I've I've seen. I wrote this book like in, in its entirety, and then I rewrote it in its entirety. And the first version of it, the father had many more shortcomings, personality defects, <laughs> and it was difficult to manage that along with the story about a whole other family. So in order to make it simple, he's a bit simpler. Certainly, I, I could probably write a whole book with just him, but I wouldn't. But he needs to be simple in order for this for the story to work, because if he was more complicated, it wouldn't have gone as smoothly. But I do worry about like a couple of times, again, going back to what happens when we talk about viewing books by uh, people of color from that mindset of the immigrant experience. I've had a couple of occasions where I've been asked to place Mustafa as that stereotype of a controlling uh, Middle Eastern man who wants to possess his children and his spouse. He's not that guy. He's he's not that guy. And he I'm sure there are that those guys out there, but he's not that guy. And I needed that a little bit just for the story to be able to work out. But also because in order for him to be able to make the turnaround fast enough to be able to become supportive he needed to have fewer problems. <laughs> and in reality, I think fathers, fathers are the last to get into the process, the healing process, because they are put on the periphery as some kind of guard by like mainstream society. They're not allowed in to talk about emotions or their feelings or their sense of vulnerability or their inability to do anything other than just to be there. And that that's okay. I wanted to talk about all the different ways that men approach issues regarding violence, sexual violence, patriarchy, and to show that, especially Mustafa's uh, friend, who uh, Afwork, who is a black man, and he presents his take on sexual violence and how he learned to be supportive and how he understands his role. Again, as another jab at the continued stereotypes of brown men and black men as being emotionally dense or very simplistic in their um, ability to be part of the family. I really like that conversation between those two and uh, that there was uh, that that moment of teaching, right? That Afork understood that this was his moment to teach Mustafa, right? Um, and that he and that he had a way to do it and that Mustafa was open enough to listen and to take it in. Because the whole thing, you're right about if he was truly that super controlling guy, well, he wouldn't have been able to take it in, right? He would have brushed it off and would have said, get out of my business. I know, I know you know. I know how to how to raise my family and et cetera, right? So that's what I really like. I like the steps I could see him taking towards it, right? Admitting that control was not the way to go and not knowing what was next, 
but admitting mm -hmm. that and taking those, those kinds of steps. And I love the scene, you know, that scene towards the end. And I, I think this, I, I've said, you know, before that, I think that, yes, this is a novel about sexual assault, but it's also a novel about love, right? About familial love and how people love each other and how they learn to change how they love each other. And we started by talking about the relationship between the, the two sisters. And there's a scene I love towards the end where Farah confronts Farzana with being what Farah thinks is withholding of her emotions. And, you know, Farzana has to explain that's, that's just who she is. It doesn't mean that she wants to keep secrets from her younger sister, but that she, it, she too is learning to see what it's like to be different in the world, right? In terms of her ambition with her job, right? And I know that, that scene with, with the, uh, when she discovers that she's not in line for the managerial position because she's been professional in every way, but she hasn't been uh, forthcoming and collegial with her, with her colleagues. And it's like a blow to her because she thinks, but I've done everything right. And according to her own standards, she has done everything right, but she has to step outside her comfort zone. So my question uh, is, what is your interest in this book? And of course, in, in your first book as well, in talking about how women define intimacy between themselves and, and emotional intimacy um, between sisters or, or, or between friends, because that comes up uh, quite a bit in the book as well. Emotional intimacy is it's the stuff of like good books. <laughs> That's what I I love the best. Anytime there's um, pillow talk between lovers or those moments where, you know, the mother is taking care of the sick kid and they have that cuddle in bed where something comes out of it. I see that there are people in my life, people who are comfortable with me growing, who want that for me and don't see it as a infringement, don't see it as me making waves, uh, making their life difficult. And those are the relationships that I nurture. Many of them are women uh, because of a shared experience we have. And it happens everywhere for everyone. There are these people that we can talk to in a way that is so comforting because they just remind us that even if we were comatose, we're worthwhile. We're, we're just mm. perfect and it's okay to continue growing and working on it. And I want to capture that in the books as opportunities not just that exists presently, but that we can create and grow into, give others the opportunity to share that with us. And so in the novel, whether it's between the two sisters or between the husband and the wife, it's just these small moments that really show us how vulnerable the person is because they open up and they, they tell the other character this is what I'm really worried about. Oh my God, what if this happens? And it's a it's a bit of a shorthand to be able to like explore the characters like um, inner concerns. But it's also, I think like the truth of the matter is that this is how we live. Without emotional intimacy, we are left to tell ourselves these stories that don't necessarily make sense anymore. And we need to run them by someone else to say, Hey, this is this is how I saw the thing that happened. And do you think it's okay that I I think of it like that? 
and to be able to hear somebody else say, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. If that's what you need, that's okay. You just keep going forward like that. And it helps us to just keep having these small little moments where we confirm that our version of events is valid. Our version of events can be the truth for us. And that's, that's okay. And little by little, we get brave enough to publish, right? Okay, I want to talk about something that I've been hearing lately that just cheeses me off, and I think it'll cheese you off as well. <laughs> I have been hearing rumbles lately, and I guess this is a conversation that's been going on on and off for a number of years. But I don't like what, I, what I'm hearing about this um, idea of issue books, right, or the issue novel, right? And I think this is a really dismissive and, and reductive term. And it's almost always applied to um, books that are written by uh, people of color, by LGBTQ folks, by uh, certainly by women, uh, so indigenous writers, etc. Um, and it's always about, well, this is an issue book because it pushes back against the patriarchy. This is an issue book because it calls out racism. This is an issue book because it calls out sexism or homophobia, transphobia, etc. And it just it drives me crazy because it suggests that there's only one kind of book and one kind of writer. And that to uh, actually talk about these issues uh, is not novelistic, but it's political and only political and political in a way that is marginal. So anyway, I am, I am not happy with this talk <laughs> and I thought I'd say so on the show. I say so in my classroom as well. Um, and have you been hearing this talk? I mean, and I want to give you a, a chance to respond to it. Well, Tannis, that sounds like the story of my life. The issue always being whatever it is that is interesting to uh, mainstream, right? So, okay, uh, this is a good one. This is a good one because I, I think of it as, I guess I don't, I'm not upset. It's disappointing, but it's predictable, expected. Okay, so I think about the, I'm not sure what we call now, the the construct that takes content from artists, puts a spin on it, and then puts it out into mainstream media, or puts it out into the world, that whatever that is, that little spin maker, I treat it like a toddler, you know, uh, because it's like a toddler Maybe today I taught you that this orange bit is a piece of cheese. And then tomorrow I put a white bit in front of you and I tell you that's a piece of cheese. And they're like, no, it's not. That's not cheese. I know cheese when I smell cheese, you know. And maybe like in a couple of years, you'll come to finally at some point accept that, yeah, they're both pieces of cheese. It's okay. You know, you don't need to fight mommy on this. And I feel like that's what happens with the work of anybody from a marginalized community we need to be put into our category. If you can't see a human being as a human being, if you're seeing them for what they are on a demographics chart, you know, uh, then you're going to want to put them, plunk them into a box. And okay, fine, you go do your toddler thing. Eventually, uh, there'll be more of me in your system than there are of you. And then we'll have some change uh, the same way that we have been doing with like the feminist movement, right? right. Um, we're seeing that the more women we have in power, the difference in policies, the difference that we have in culture and literature. And I think that, uh, okay, so like a couple of 
I don't, okay, this is a secret. Don't tell anyone. I don't read very often. <laughs> There's just is not enough time in the day, but I do listen to a lot of uh, audiobooks and I, I love audiobooks. The one I'm listening to now is uh, Indians on Vacation by Thomas King, and it's awesome. But I think about some of my favorite books that I, I've read in the past uh, the Bishop's Man by um, Lyndon McIntyre, uh, As the Crow Flies by Amory McDonald. They're about violence against children. They're about sexual abuse. But no one would call those one issue book. They're just, they're not that. They're part of a huge Canadiana. And eventually we will all be part of that Canadiana because we are right now. It's just that weird spin maker, that mm. thing that's like keeps like spinning things and doesn't want the orange cheese and the yellow cheese to both be considered cheese. <laughs> that that will eventually need to change enough so that there are so many people in power that recognize that these are all stories that we don't need to put them into categories the way that we we have in the past, and then change will come. But like going back to the beginning of our conversation about that, how will I impact the world? It's one brick at a time. It's just one step at a time, one block of cheese at a time. <laughs> I think, you know, on cheese and impact, that's a, a perfect spot to <laughs> wind up our conversation. I guess the last thing I'm going to ask you is, what are you working on now? It's kind of a cruel question to ask someone who just had a book out, but can you say anything about what you're writing lately? I finished a novel that I've sent in. It's expected out in February of, no, sorry, in fall of 2024. So uh, that is about the intersectionality of power and how women, women of color continue to face some really sticky, messy situations uh, when they strive for something outside of their present standing. I'm really excited about that one because I just love the characters. <laughs> I thought they were really good. I thought that they were interesting to write and they're still in my head, even though they've been out of my head for a while. But uh, so that's what I'm working on in that way. My other writing has been uh, trying to get out some articles and uh, and I'm practicing something. I'm going to say it, but please just like don't hold me to it. But I'm practicing writing in the first person which is different, which is very different. So uh, that means that I write like five words an hour. <laughs> I, write, I write the words and I'm like, no, 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 no. I wouldn't write them like that. Would I write them like that? Can I write them like that? Yeah. That's, that's a shift. That's a shift from novel writing for sure. I, I'm a nonfiction writer, so I write in the first person all the time, right? <laughs> But uh, but you're right. Uh, my my challenge is not writing in the first person, and yours is. <laughs> Can you tell us the the working title of the novel that's coming out in 2024? Untitled. No. Untitled. <laughs> yeah, untitled. So yeah. Okay. Yes, I always We're come up with wait. the worst titles, and then my editor, who is a lovely, lovely woman, uh, she Pazilla Jiwa, uh, she eventually will let me know that my title doesn't make any sense, <laughs> and then it occurs to me. Oh my God, of course. Why did I name it that? That doesn't make any sense. So uh, I'm just waiting for it to like hit me. It's, it's, it's coming. It's coming. I'll let you know. Kimia, thank you for speaking uh, with us today. 
Sister Seen, Sister Heard is published by Roseway Publishing, an imprint of Fernwood Publishing, and is available now at Wordsworth Books or wherever fine books are sold. Please remember to support independent booksellers as you read local and think global. It's December, and I know I'm wondering how that happened, but time flies. At Watershed Writers, it can be no surprise that we are thinking about what to read over the holidays. Happy holidays from Watershed Writers. So the light gets low and uh, we all engage in some sort of holiday ritual around this time. Some people uh, celebrate Hanukkah, some people celebrate Christmas, some people celebrate the solstice and the turning of the seasons and the shortest day of the year. And I know for me and for many people, reading is a huge part of the holiday season. As I said, the, the days get shorter and some of us have a little more time off and I know it's always my time of year to look back on what I've read throughout the year and I post big long lists of recommendations and uh, count up how many I, I, I've read and I'm kind of as you know a big reader so I, I like to look back on what I've been reading genre wise and um, and of course having uh, Christmas reads as well and do you have a Christmas read coming up? I do. In fact, I just finished it because it was the best book to read while I had the flu. Uh, also, <laughs> yeah. And this is also a shout out to our uh, dog friendly show on Midtown Radio because it's about dogs and it's a specific dog, a dog called Fig, who was owned by the wonderful writer Helen Humphreys. She learned a lot from raising dogs and she finds their traits are admirable and they're also likable. But she also goes into all these other writers who had dogs. There's Virginia Woolf's uh, Grizzle. There's Thomas Hardy's Fox Terrier. And of course, Gertrude Stein, who doted on her poodle basket. So she finds the dog opened up the writing process for her um, because they live very firmly in their bodies. Um, oh, I love that book. And Helen's a, a fantastic writer and, and someone I met very early in my writing career and was very influential for me. So I'm glad you're liking that book. Something I'm reading right now that I think I will read through the holidays is Donna Morrissey's Pluck. This is her memoir, and it even has a long subtitle, A Memoir of a Newfoundland Childhood and the Raucous, Terrible, Amazing Journey to Becoming a Novelist. So it's a memoir, but also a memoir of, of writing. And I'm very interested in it. I'm just a few uh, chapters in, and I think in some ways I am saving it for the holidays so I can uh, get stuck deep into it. Well, we've had a wonderful year with uh, Watershed Writers, and we've got a very loyal audience, uh, not just of uh, people who admire literature, but also people who write, which has been a wonderful surprise. Yes, it's very good, and we are grateful for our readers, and we wish them all a happy holiday season in 2022. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Watershed Riders, the third of season three. Watershed Riders comes to you every Saturday at 10 a.m. here on Midtown Radio. And if you miss an episode or just want to listen again, we've got your back. You can catch up on our episodes posted to SoundCloud. And let me tell you, there are plenty of them. The Grand River region is packed to the gills with writers, and we want to talk to all of them, one at a time. 
Watershed Writers is produced in partnership with the Idea Exchange and the Waterloo Public Library. We are a team of three. Francis Roberts Riley is our fearless leader. John Roscoe is our technical producer. And I am your host, Tannis McDonald. Our theme music is Water by the Kitchener singer-songwriter Alicia Brilla. Join us again next week to listen local and think global. Oh.